Our brains are not getting smarter anytime soon. Anxiety has gone up. Let me play my part. Check to hate. Like, is that real? Did that happen? Like, the structure of your brain actually changes. And do you still feel that every day? And then it got time for guitars. Eating disorder, like, I didn't want to die. Tendencies. But I didn't want to live. Yeah. Helpless little girl. You gotta go in the hospital. You feel powerless because the body has a fear reaction. The opportunity to empower. No one can take away my power. I won't take myself out. Artists that are true like that, those are the ones that tend to create change. There's also the thing where our brains haven't increased in size for, you know... Hundreds of thousands of years, and so uh, I'd say we're overdue <laughs> for an upgrade. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, actually, we work with um, uh, somebody in the philosophy department, I believe it is, who says um, one of the most interesting things about the time we're in with neuroscience is that our brains are not getting smarter anytime soon, but Jesus we're able to develop technology that's smarter than us that will help us solve problems that you our brains no can't do. no sci-fi movie ever? <laughs> that is the worst. But the good news is soon the computers yeah. will turn themselves on. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Horrible. It could be horrifying too. Um, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> hopefully they don't turn on us. Um, but, <sighs> you know, back to the well-worn pathways thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the... The thing is, if we get into any sort of physical or mental pattern, it's hard to break out of. And so so when you approach a scientific question and you have your biases, you don't realize it, but you're going down well-worn pathways in your brain. And so it can be very hard to say you have disconfirming data to not go, um, well, these data don't match what I expected because there was something wrong with our study design. So we didn't find the thing that we thought we would, but we just need to do a better study to find it. Or <laughs> to find what we set out to find. Yes. Or um, you know, what often happens just because our methods are fallible is we have one study saying that um so a great example of this is the dieting literature, right? We have um studies showing that dieting is bad. It leads to eating disorders. It leads to people gaining, not losing weight, and so forth. Then we have some studies showing that dieting is good. It helps people lose weight. It helps people feel psychologically better, and so forth. And so when you have this confirmation bias, which study are you going to believe? You're going to believe those that match how you already see the world. And that's a a really big problem is that um, people just pull whatever pieces of data um, match how they see the world. That's interesting because there are are people who I, I think the word dieting is used incorrectly. I think there's no such thing as a person who doesn't have a diet. Your diet is what you eat, right? Mm-hmm. So if we take a Japanese person, raise them in the United States, um, a lot of their medical statistics on various different uh, chronic diseases that are plaguing the world right now will match the American levels. Mm-hmm. Take that same person, raise them in Japan, it's a 97% chance 
that they won't deal with obesity in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, again, I just come back to culture and environmental determinism and I, we're all, we're all spectacular individual flowers, but seriously, you were born at a certain time and place. And there's so many social cues telling you, do this, do that, get in the car, go here, go there, have another one. Once you pop, you can't stop. And, mm -hmm. and, and why not have one more? And, and I just think that we really overlook the societal cues and being in a consumer economy, the food industry is part of that economy. And I feel like it's just shoved down our throats. Yeah, absolutely. It's easy to blame the big corporations. And, and frankly, they could use a, a little bit of a checking yeah, so what's interesting is, um, you know, uh, if you look at the last several decades, um, obviously over time, uh, rates of obesity have gone up. Um, also, interestingly um, and terrifyingly, rates of depression have gone up, anxiety has gone up, perfectionism has gone up over time. Now, our, um, the basic way our brains are structured, the, our, our genes, those aren't changing in that short a time scale. Yeah, genetic, right? like there's no evolutionary reason for us to be getting more depressed. That's right. And so, and so you have to look to the environment to say, what is going on that's, that's affecting us this way? Because um, I think a lot of people think of this brain-environment divide, right? Like it's either your biology that's wrong or it's the environment that's wrong. Um, but uh, when, when you're struggling with, you know, a mental health disorder, but in, in truth, our environments shape our brains, our environments profoundly affect our brains. And then we, you know, we in turn act on our environments. And so um, there's such an exchange going on that if you are in an environment that, um, is pulling you in a direction, for instance, like um, a, a food environment that's um, compelling you to uh, eat food that is easily available and as um, high, high density and high sugar and so forth as possible, um, it's going to be hard not to be drawn towards that. And has been engineered to suppress your sense of satiety. Right. The elephant in the room. Right. That people don't like to talk about. But I think that's like, I would like to take like an army of people with BED mm -hmm. and just take them into the CEO's office of, you know, name that corporation. Right. And, and hold up the wrapper and say, what do you mean you can't have just one? You printed it right here on the package. You're right. proud of that? Right. You're fucking killing me. Like right. there are people who just need to be checked <laughs> yeah. and organizations that need to be checked. And in yeah. the end, the consumer decides what companies fail and succeed. I get it. But I mean, it's life and death. Can yeah. we, can we say now and then that, um, it, it can't all come back to the almighty dollar. Yeah. It's so interesting. So this idea of free will too, um, this is one that, so I, I, fantasy of free will. right, exactly. Well, <laughs> and I, I, this is not the work I primarily do, but, um, I have a good friend who does, um, work in public policy measures for, um, helping, helping people make food choices that are, um, more effective. So like things like, uh, taxing, um, soda is an example, the sim similar, um, approaches to what to, people have done to reduce tobacco use, right? And so um, as far as free will goes, you know, um, what a lot of people don't realize is that when you make make a, a consumer choice, um, you are being influenced by 
all sorts of intentions on the part of whatever group is selling that thing, right? So there's a bunch of people sitting down saying, how can we make it most likely that this person is going to purchase this thing, Mm -hmm. including food products? Um, So when... um, when people get upset about taking away free will by, say, taxing soda or um, limiting the um, the portions that you can get or something like that, um, uh, I I understand that, and I also think your free will has already been taken away because uh, a lot of the companies have specifically designed things so that you are more likely to consume more. And it's free will within the options available. Yes. Right? Like right. if I had free will in, I was reading about these Kenyan marathon runners the other day, and it's like, obviously they don't wake up in the morning and have a hot pocket out of the microwave, right? right. They're eating stuff that came out of the ground. They're eating the stuff that I fed Cal after her cancer diagnosis. Mm-hmm. You know, after years of being told you can never restrict her, you can never restrict her. And I was like, well, I know this sucks, but we're eating fucking fruits and vegetables and right. we're just going to have to find a way to get the calories in. Yeah. She thrived. Mm. Like she, it was something about reconnecting. I know this sounds like hippie stuff. Yeah. And I don't eat that great now, but like something about reconnecting and eating something real out of the earth, like mm-hmm. it actually feels really good. Mm-hmm. So For I don't sure. think it has to be some kind of a, like a, a shameful thing, but it's just not a daily part of our culture. If I'm yeah. out and about and I'm running an errand, what do I have access to? Right. Crap. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, right? And- so where does my free will fall into that picture within that set of options? You know, you're, the other thing, you know, kind of bringing it back to my wheelhouse of eating disorders, you know, that you're picking up on is um, a lot of times we'll hear from people who are struggling with eating disorders. Um, you know, a lot of eating disorder treatment is is focused on you can basically eat whatever, you know, you should be able to eat whatever. And it's true. You, you should be able to eat whatever. Um but not all, all of it all of the time, right? And so I think um, what we hear from a lot of people who are in treatment is um, I'm being told to, say, eat this large piece of cake or whatever as my dessert. Well, you know, other people in the world are not being told you should eat a bunch of cake, right? And if you the, don't eat your dessert, you have an eating disorder. Right. I've, exactly. I've seen people in IDP yes. struggle with that. Like, they're forcing me to eat piles of cookies, and I just don't fucking want it. Like, yes. And, and they say if I don't eat it, that I'm feeding my eating disorder. Like, mm-hmm. is that yeah. really necessary? And I think the ultimate goal is you want somebody to be able to interact with all the foods and in the way that... Um, a tip, like somebody who's not struggling with an eating disorder, who doesn't have a complicated relationship with food does, right? That you go to a kid's birthday party and you can have a piece of cake or you, you know, um, you go out with friends and have a piece of pizza and a beer, right? And it's it's not a big deal. You don't hate yourself afterwards. Exactly, exactly. And so that's the goal. But I think um, I think what a lot of people pick up on, which is true, is that they're being asked to eat in a way that most people are not asked to eat. And so there has to be a balance there where, you know, people who are struggling with eating disorders can, um, can make choices that sound to them like what everybody else is being asked to do, right? Eat, um, fresh, real foods, right? And also have the ability to say, 
yeah, but you know what? It's the holidays and, <laughs> you know, there are cookies right here and that looks good and I can have a cookie and, and yeah. like you said, not hate myself. And not hate yourself and not, again, like you were saying earlier, feel out of control. Yes. Like that's if right. I decided I wanted to, why am I having, why am I on my eighth one? Yeah. Like, cause that is part of the feeling of this disease is calling the shots in my life. It's telling me what to do and I can't control it. Yes. That's a that's horrible right. feeling too, right? Yes. Aside from any physical consequences or did I look good in my swimsuit? Just not being able to control your own mind and mm-hmm. make your own decisions. Yeah. It seems to me like that would feel like a prison. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I, I, I'm actually glad you brought this up because I know you mentioned it before. Um, eating disorders are, are about so much more than I don't like how I look in my swimsuit. Um, if you ask anybody with an eating disorder about their narrative um, of what their eating disorder is about and why they're doing it very rarely has to do with, I want to look good or yeah. something like that. Um, maybe at the very beginning, that was a component of it, but it, it, it um, but not, not always, but most of the time it seems to have to do with something about, um, having some way to deal with emotions that, um, that are, intense or feel out of control or um, or they, they just can't get a handle on um, or having a way to um, make myself feel better, make myself feel in control in um, a time where I don't get that from my environment. Um, and, and yes, okay, so the body is is a part of it and food is a part of it. But um, I think at a much more basic level, it's about managing emotions. So that's perfect. Um, if you wanted to keep it under 90 minutes, we've got maybe 15 minutes left. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Uh, sorry about that. I just have <laughs> no, a little one back at home. No, that's perfect. That's, okay. that's perfect. So okay. I want to make sure we touch on what comes back to the core of the foundation for me, which is uh, this sense of like where the hell did this problem come from and how much of your well-being mm-hmm. and the hormones that dictate to you that you're okay reside in the stomach yeah and how when those get shifted again we usually talk about trauma mm-hmm. um that once i learned that like it mm-hmm. felt like the eating disorder made so much sense to me can yeah. you talk about the mind and the stomach and the overall sense of well-being just mm-hmm. whatever you feel is worth mentioning yeah so um so there are many there are many different pathways that can lead to a person developing an eating disorder in terms of their experiences. Trauma is a very common one, um, but of course, not everybody who has an eating disorder has a trauma history. Um, one thing we do know that uh, is that most people who end up developing an eating disorder. Um, from the from well before they have an eating disorder, have um, more negative affects, so they they struggle more with things like depression and anxiety um, than the average person. Um, what we also are starting to learn is that there are metabolic components that we don't entirely understand that seem to predate when somebody has an eating disorder. So, for instance. Um, there's some evidence that people who go on to develop anorexia nervosa um, from very early on, even prenatally, are at lower weights than, uh, you know, and obviously they're not doing anything to manage their eating at that point. Um, 
and uh, people who go on to struggle with um, binge eating disorder or excess weight, they tend to start at higher weights from, again, like infancy. Um, And so, um, and there's some stuff coming out of the genetic work that suggests that that's metabolically dictated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so regardless of the pathway that gets that starts the ball rolling towards an eating disorder, what we know is that um, some people are going to be drawn to um, being at higher or lower weights, um, or engaging in overeating or undereating based on their just basic metabolic makeup. And we also know that some people are going to be predisposed to, um, having higher affect, negative affect that maybe they need to find a way to manage that. Right. So somebody who's who doesn't as inherently struggle with anxiety and depression doesn't need these external things to try to manage that. They just don't have that experience as much. Mm-hmm. Now you throw something like trauma into it um, that um, seriously disrupts um, uh, the emotional system, seriously disrupts um, uh, physical safety and all of that. Um And um, you have another layer where somebody um, not only might be predisposed to having um, more emotional concerns, might not just be predisposed to having more metabolic tendency in one direction or another, but now has an environmental force that is um, shifting them towards, I need something to help me manage this terrible experience and and manage my brain's reaction to natural reaction to this terrible experience. Um, so um, when somebody, and I'll say, um, as you said, there are uh, things like serotonin, most of the uh, receptors for it are in the stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, so then there are also effects of once you start um uh, doing things that disrupt how how your um, GI system functions, it can be this negative feedback loop, right? So one thing we know, for instance, is that when people restrict their eating um, and become underweight, at first there can be this part that makes them feel better, less anxious and so forth, but over time they feel worse, right, mentally. Um, and we think that has something to do with what's going on in the gut. So at first the behavior is rewarded and then do they continue the behavior after the reward fades because they just remember it that way that that association is already built kind of like a drug addict? Yes. Uh, so um, we're still learning about how all this works, but what we think happens is that things start off, like you said, as as um, some sort of reward experience, something that helps you um, get an outcome right away, right? So whether it be... I lose weight and I feel really good about that. That feels like a reward to me. Or I, um, you know, eat all all this food and it feels good physically. Or um, I eat all this food and it helps me escape the bad feelings. Um, So we think it starts out that way. We are pretty sure over time it becomes something where – the eating disorder behaviors help people escape negative feelings, right? So um, if you have somebody who 
comes into the world, well, who early on in their life has um, more negative emotions kind of swirling around in them, and then they restrict their eating, or they binge, or they purge, and then um, it helps them feel less bad. You're going to be more likely to do that because you are struggling with how in the world do I not feel terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, then what it's what many people think, and there's some emerging evidence for this, is that over time it becomes a habit. So like you, we were talking about those well-worn paths down your brain, right? So if you, every time you feel um, negative emotion, you say, oh, I have, I know, I know a thing that makes me feel better. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go uh, make myself vomit, for instance. Um, then every, there, it, it builds those pathways in the brain such that every time you feel bad, your brain starts going on autopilot towards, oh, I know what to do. Back to that low percentage on the CPU, right? It's That's It's going to do the easiest path forward. Exactly. Exactly. And I think this is also why it's so hard to break out of an eating disorder at first hmm. because you're dramatically shifting what your brain knows how to do. Um, and so it can feel very disorienting at first. Um, And it does take a lot of cognitive and emotional effort, Um, not to mention sometimes physical effort. Yeah, more nourishment, right? If you're using your brain in a new way, doesn't that require, and I don't know if it's necessarily more caloric intake, but I've heard a lot about more water and things Mm -hmm. like that. If you're using your mind in a new way, it's just you're pushing a a physical machine harder. You've got to make up for that somehow. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, It's physically... Um, exhausting as well. Yeah. So um, when she was in EMDR, I just remember mm. her being just exhausted. It was Friday nights. It was Friday at five, mm-hmm. and the weekend would just be her just trying to sleep it off. Yes. Like, and obviously looking back, there was a lot physically going on as well because that was around the last year of her life. But at the same time, it was so sudden. I can tr- I can pretty much link it to that therapy. It was good. It was doing good things, but she was like just anyone online that's like, hey, does anyone know about this? She was like, just be ready. Yeah. Because it kind of was like getting run over by a truck. Yes, absolutely. I remember um, one of my first patients when I was in graduate school, um, she actually didn't have an eating disorder. It was a different psychological um, issue that we were working on. But she found um, she was very afraid to come into treatment, and she found treatment at first to be very stressful because she wasn't used to talking about her problems, and um, and she was very ashamed of what she was coming in and talking about. And I remember her saying, I have to schedule my appointments for Friday because mm-hmm. I need the whole weekend to recover. Yeah. Um, so, yes, that, that kind of work can be so, so physically draining. I don't think people... In like maybe maybe there's the inner circle of friends or the one or two people that you really can talk to about what's going on with you. But then there's the casual acquaintances, the mm-hmm. friend from work, or the kind of maybe second tier yeah. that's not quite inner circle. And they're like, what do you mean you're exhausted because you had therapy on Friday? That was a day and a half ago. And it's just like, how can people... One of my hopes with this podcast is that people yeah. don't have to fucking explain themselves anymore. That people will have, like I said, that basic literacy around mental health. Yeah. I just want people... If you've been tuning out the whole time and now you're just finally listening, <laughs> just understand what physical toll really serious trauma therapy takes on the body. Absolutely. And that this person you care about who's going through this is fucking exhausted. Do you know um, 
there there's some research that even most therapists don't like to do uh, the recommended treatments for um, trauma because they are so emotionally exhausting for the therapist to even witness. Um, really? Yeah. So they can see the toll it's taking on the person and they tend to avoid it as well? Mm-hmm. So there's even, um, you can, as a provider, develop PTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, from um, hearing hearing people's trauma in and out yeah. of uh, of you know day in and day out, so they talk they call it secondary trauma, right? Yep. And I've been told that uh, because people say this about me, they'll be like, you know, you can call it secondary trauma, but it's very real, and you're, yes, you're being affected by caring about this person and right. carrying what they carry. That's and right. And now talking about it for the rest of your life, right. like take care of yourself as well, because yes. secondary trauma probably also takes a physical toll. Yes. And I um the the one thing I do want to put in a plug for it related to that though is it's very mentally and physically exhausting often to get the treatment that people need. Um but I kind of think of it like um if you've ever had like a deep massage, you know, <laughs> uh, the first time I got a massage, I expected it to be relaxing and enjoyable. And in <laughs> fact, it was very, very painful. <laughs> um, and I did, I had not realized that was the case. And, um, and so, uh, you know, but the next day I felt so much better, right? It, it had relaxed me. It had loosened me later. Right through that pain, and I think um, good treatment is like that. There is always a, a hurdle to cross at, at, at the beginning, where it's it's painful and it's hard, and it's hard to know if it's gonna get better than mm-hmm. that. Um, but often on the other side, there is is the healing and the ability to have um, a full and complete life. And, um, and so I, I do want to encourage people that if, if you go to treatment and it feels like that at first, um, not because the therapist is doing something that fe- is wrong, right? Um, in that case, of course, you should find somebody who does things that feel um, like, you know, a better fit. But um, some, sometimes it's just an a initial hurdle to get through. So with only a minute or two left, yeah. um, any other research going on with your organization that you want to plug or talk about before you head out? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, I want to say that um, there is so much we're learning about um, what goes into developing and, and being stuck in an eating disorder and how to treat it, but so much more we need to know. Um, you mentioned this uh, before, but the eating disorders field is way underfunded um, and has been for years. So we often um, say the eating disorders field research is is maybe about 20 years behind something like depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, mm-hmm. um, despite the fact that it's such uh, has such a toll on people who suffer with eating disorders. So um, the only way we can learn more is by people coming in and participating in the research who have either are acutely struggling with an eating disorder or, or are in the process of recovery. Um, and we have a number of studies going on right now, um, that are, are looking at, um, 
how um, the brain responds to having an eating disorder and and how we can intervene upon that. Um, and um, if there's anybody out there who, especially who's in the Twin Cities area, who um, who wants to find a way to give back to the eating disorders community um, and to help other people who are maybe struggling with similar problems, um, I, I think contributing to research is such a beautiful way to do that. So, um, do you have contact information you can share? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can uh, email us is probably the easiest way at mcedr at umn.edu. Um, and if anybody's listening to this and wants to contact me directly, um, my email is a um, f as in Frank h a y N-O-S, as in Sam, at umn.edu. Um, and I can also direct you to um, the the research program. Cool. Could I post it on our website? Yes, please. And so I also have the phone number. I just don't know it off the no, top of we'll, my head. No, we'll, we'll add something because I've wanted to have a good resources section. It's a little thin right now. Yeah, absolutely. I use Dr. Google. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you want other eating disorders resources too, we have a whole list. Awesome. Yeah. I'll just link out to you guys. Yeah. So selfishly, can I ask you to say anything you want about why anyone should support the Kelly Nicole Foundation? Sure, absolutely. Um, we... we need as many people in this fight as as possible towards um, helping people who struggle with eating disorders and other mental illnesses. Um, and so, you know, what this foundation is doing in trying to support people who are struggling with trauma, who are struggling with eating disorders, to try to get information out there um, is is so important. Um, and so I, I really think, and, and um, let me also say it's a beautiful tribute to Kelly as well. So um, it's very touching to me that that you've you know continued this th- this work in memory of her um so i i am in full support of you know your organization which reaches you know tries to reach out to people in that way awesome well thank you so much for being on the program we're yeah. at 92 minutes so i'm gonna let you free okay thank you appreciate it as always yeah absolutely get the music behind the mission Hate Becoming by Kelly Nicole on iTunes and Spotify. If you guys haven't checked out the merch table, join the movement. Buy the album. Get your Kelly Nicole band merch and donate what you can at kellynicolefoundation.org. Courage is proud. Amplified!